John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. I think it's got 14 in there, but I, I changed things. I kept going back and forth between 13, 14, and 15. So, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the, uh, on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd had come toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread, so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, almost 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and filled twelve baskets with fragments, from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the scriptures. We give you thanks for what they tell us about what Jesus did and therefore about who he is. And so according to the riches of your glory, grant that we would be strengthened with power through the Spirit in our innermost being so that Christ himself may dwell in our hearts by faith, that we may be rooted and grounded in love and may have strength to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled ourselves with the fullness of God. Accomplish this through the reading and preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a, a cult classic, well, I guess it's classic, it's over 20 years old by now, I think. Pulp Fiction. You probably didn't expect to hear that name today. In the course of this movie, there, it's uh, centered primarily along two main characters, one by the name of Vincent Vega, who was played by John Travolta, and the other, Jules, who was played by Samuel L. Jackson. And at the start of this movie, uh, these two gangsters have been sent by their boss to retrieve a suitcase that has been stolen. And one of the great mysteries of the movie is that you never find out what's actually in the suitcase. But that's neither here nor there. In the course of retrieving the suitcase, uh, you know, violence ensues. And 
there's one man who's hiding in the bathroom and he has a handgun. And so when it gets quiet in the room, he jumps out angry at Vincent and Jules and completely unloads his handgun at point-blank range. Jules and Vincent pause for a moment, see that there are no holes in their bodies, and to dispatch the other man. When uh, Jules moves, well, well, they show this shot, you can see there's two bullet holes in the wall behind him. But then when he moves, you can see that there are four more bullet holes right where, apparently, he would have been standing. They have a, a disagreement, shall we say, as to what happened in that moment. Because Jules is convinced that a miracle took place. He believes that God stopped the bullets, that somehow God stopped the bullets enough that they kind of went around him, they did like a Looney Tunes sort of thing, and missed him completely. So he's ruminating on this the rest of the sort of the time frame of the movie. And later they're sitting in a cafe, sort of like Denny's, and they're debating this. And they're debating the meaning of a miracle. And Jules is still convinced that God stopped the bullets. While Vince says, I witnessed a freak occurrence. They both experienced the same thing. They both saw the same things. And yet they had very different interpretations of what happened. That's what I'm getting at here. There are things that some people call miracles, and some people say freak occurrence, or try to find some other reason to avoid believing that God did something completely unexpected and contrary, perhaps, to the ordinary. This morning begins, the, as we look, first this miracle, next week we'll look at another miracle that takes place in the ministry of Jesus. And we're going to see that Christ's abundant compassion and goodness cannot be turned to our ends. It's going to start really well, and then it's not going to end up so well early on. Before we get to the theology of everything that's kind of going on in, in this passage, I want to set the stage a little bit. So where did this take place? It takes place east of the Sea of Galilee, a.k.a. the Sea of Tiberias. This was in the area of Galilee, which is north and east of Jerusalem. This means Jesus left Jerusalem. It's kind of odd because at the end of chapter 5, he's engaging in this dispute with the Jewish leaders. And John never tells us what happens for a reason. Because John does not want us to think for some reason that this dispute between Jesus and the Jewish leaders has ended or come to a resolution because it's not going to come to a resolution until they put him on the cross. So John has a theological reason for not wrapping up that little discourse. And the discourses that are to come are going to kind of feed on that one and build on it until it reaches that culmination in the cross. And so Jesus withdraws, so to speak, from Jerusalem, from this conflict, and goes to another place. It's called sometimes the Sea of Tiberias because in A.D. 20, Herod Antipas built a resort town there. And he named it after the, the current Caesar, Tiberius. And it's a resort town because there were 17 natural hot springs there. So it was a place where people would go and be refreshed and perhaps healed, so they thought, by these hot springs. 
And so it took its name, this, the Sea of Galilee then began to take the name of this famous place, Tiberias, with this famous Caesar. Now, many Jews lived there, and many Gentiles lived there, but the Jews who lived there tended not to be very devout Jews, because right there was a cemetery. And a cemetery meant that people would be ceremonially unclean. And so devout Jews kind of stayed away from that place, and Jesus goes to that place. When did this take place? John notes that this was shortly before the Passover. The Passover was at hand, he says. He's giving us a time frame, spring. The other gospel writers don't note this because they all recount this miracle, but they all include different details from one another. But we do know that Mark includes the fact that the grass was green. John includes that they they sat down on the grass, but Mark tells us it was green. Spring. The winter rains producing the green grass that the summer sun has not yet turned to brown. Okay? So, they're in harmony with one another. Some people note the differences and think they must be in disharmony with one another. But when we slow down, we see that they're working together. John, in bringing up this idea of the Passover, is building on this wilderness journey theme that's going to come to a greater fruition in this discourse that we'll get to in a couple of weeks. But we're going to continue to see this theme that John has been building, that Jesus is greater than Moses, but not only is he greater than Moses this week, we're going to see he's greater than the rest of the prophets as well. Why did this take place? Because the crowd is following him around. There's sort of an imperfect verb that is there, which gives the idea that wherever he would go, the crowd would sort of soon follow, find out he was there and follow him. And it was not like a one-time occurrence. We know from the other gospel accounts that they had gone into the mountain area, the hillside, specifically because the crowd was following them, they tried to withdraw and get away and have some time alone with one another so that Jesus could mentor and disciple these men. And the crowds found them again, those pesky crowds. We also know from the other accounts that Jesus began to teach the crowds. John leaves that out here. That's not really where he's going. That's not what's important to him at this particular point in time. And so what you have here is 10,000 plus people in the countryside who need to eat because the day is ending. This is, I think, the 45th anniversary of Woodstock this weekend. I can't remember how many people were at Woodstock, but it was a whole lot of people, and I imagined it would be hard to feed that many people. At our <clears throat> fall fest coming up in November, we're going to have two food trucks coming in. There were no food trucks that could hear about, oh, there's a crowd that's forming in this area. Let's show up and make money. There's none of that. There's no 7-Eleven down the street. There's a problem that they have to deal with. That's setting the stage. Let's get into the what happens, what's important about this. And we see that Jesus reveals the abundant compassion and goodness of God for people. He tests Philip. The text says he does this. 
Why Philip? Well, if we remember earlier, Philip lived in Bethsaida, and so he was fam more familiar with that area as opposed to, uh, you know, Nazareth, Capernaum. So he would know where they could go, where they could buy food. Now, Jesus knows what he's going to do. He's not intending that, that Philip suddenly, you know, make a, get a grabber a collection and go buy all the food and somehow bring it back in a cart. That is not Jesus' purpose. He's testing him. Is his faith in Christ that he's, you know, that he has at this point, is it such that he's going to trust him in the midst of this seemingly overwhelming situation, or is he going to despair? Is he going to become filled with fear at this seemingly impossible task of feeding thousands of people? That's a good question. He says, in response, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Eight months' salary. That's about 200 denarii for the average person at that day. So he's saying, I could have eight months' salary. Now, does that mean that that's what was in the purse that the disciples had, you know, the community purse? I don't know. But he said, eight months' salary is not enough to even give these people a little bit. That's how overwhelming, in a sense, this task that Jesus has asked about is. But we see, I think, that Philip has forgotten something. He's forgotten who he's traveling with. He's forgotten that he was with Jesus when Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding. He's forgotten that he's with Jesus, who just recently in Jerusalem healed a man who has been paralyzed for 38 years. He forgot that he was with Jesus, and the reason why all these people are following him, according to the text, is that Jesus had been healing the sick. He forgot who he was with. He forgot past graces. So like us, isn't he? When we come to hardship, when we come to difficulty, we, are, we tend to have spiritual amnesia about who loves us and how he has preserved us in the past. We become filled with fear. We begin to be filled with despair because we have forgotten whom our God is. We have forgotten what he's able to do. And so Philip and the other disciples are sort of living in that fear that is produced by spiritual amnesia. Now, Andrew, Peter's brother, pipes up. He thinks he's contributing a wee bit because he mentions this young boy, which, oddly enough, in the Greek translation of 2 Kings chapter 4, it's the same word used as of... Uh, Elisha's servant. A young boy, he says, this kid, he's got five barley loaves and two fish. He knows that's not going to feed anybody. And so in a sense, he's got despair. This is all we have. These barley loaves were predominantly eaten by the poor. This is a poor man's lunch. 
these these loaves are not like that loaf right here. You see, we could we could probably you know a couple of people could eat this loaf. They're much smaller. He's got five for lunch, and two tiny fish. This is not going to make it, folks. John, I think, specifically wants us to remember that these are barley loaves. He wants us to begin to think along the lines of the miracle we read about from 2 Kings chapter 4, where the hundred prophets are fed by these 20 small barley loaves. And there was some left over. He wants us to go back to that, to think about that, to ruminate on that. The disciples don't understand what he's going to do. I mean, think about that for a moment. Tell everyone to sit down. Okay. We're going to feed them with five loaves and two tiny fish. This is not going to take very long. <laughs> I'm sure they're thinking, you know. But they had enough faith to listen to what he said. They had enough faith to do it without questioning or arguing about it. I mean, I probably would have been like, what's the point, Jesus? <laughs> this won't even feed us. Why are we having them all sit down? Shouldn't we be telling them it's time to go home? Make it home where you have food, hopefully? Shouldn't we be doing that? But they had enough faith to obey Jesus at this moment. The men sit down, and presumably the women and children as well. And Jesus gives thanks, that nice Greek word, eucharisto, that we often use for the table. He gives thanks, good graces, and distributes the food. So he probably used the traditional Jewish blessing. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. That most likely is what he said. But John wants us to catch something here as well. There's this idea in the Old Testament about the, a covenant meal in the presence of God. We see this in Exodus 24. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up Okay, they went up the mountain, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God. See, see his grace? No man can see God and live, and yet here he extends grace to them by not striking them dead at seeing him. They beheld God and ate and drank. <coughs> they enjoyed this idea we find in Leviticus and other places in the Old Testament of a fellowship meal with God. They were dining in God's presence. We see this as well in Deuteronomy chapter 12, and we see it even in the, the, the discussion of tithes, that there was a tithe for every third year where you would bring it in and you would have a big party. 
and you'd invite other, the, the Levites and others to come in. And it specifically talks about how you, you feast in the presence of God. You, you'd get the money because you're going to travel into Jerusalem, and there you're going to buy good food to eat and wine to drink and everything else and a party in the presence of God. Jesus wants us to get that idea of what's going on here is a party in the presence of God. And not just the spiritual presence of God, but because Jesus is God incarnate, the physical presence of God. There's more going on here than just 5,000 men and women, than the women and children with them getting fed. They are dining in the presence of God. Even though they themselves might not believe Think about that for a second from Exodus 24. Who was with Moses and Aaron? Nadab and Abihu. Anybody remember what happened with good old Nadab and Abihu? Yes, they offered strange fire. They didn't obey the commands that Moses had given. And when they were trying to discharge their priestly duties because they were sons of Aaron, and shortly after that, there's the injunction that they're not supposed to drink on the job. So they might have been drinking a little bit. We don't know. But they were consumed by the fire that broke out from God. So we don't know about their eternal state, but these guys certainly experienced the chastisement of God. We'll get back to that in a little bit. And so these, these guys ate with God, even though God is going to discipline them later on. Now, as he distributes this, the food kept coming. It's like the, the flour and the oil we read about in 1 Kings 17, when there's the widow who does not have any food during the drought that Elijah was uh, presiding over, so to speak, because the people of Israel had gotten so wicked that the three years of drought... For three years, the, the oil and the flour enabled her to produce bread so that she could eat and endure the famine. Just didn't run out. She didn't go and buy more. That was all she had. Those containers never got empty. As well, we read in 2 Kings chapter 4, we, earlier than what we started with this text, there's another widow. This is the, a widow of one of the prophets whose husband has died left her with lots of debt, doesn't know what to do, and Elisha, not Elijah, says to her, get as many containers as you can. And then with that one little thing of oil you have, fill all the rest, sell them, and you'll have what you need to pay off your debts. And so it was almost as if this little thing of oil would not get empty. That's the idea. Jesus keeps, off break, keeps breaking off pieces of bread, breaking off pieces of fish, and it just keeps coming and keeps coming, and keeps coming. The text, now some people have tried to argue that what they had was a, because of the presence of the word Eucharisto, oh, a sacramental portion, you know, kind of like what we have, the little chunks of bread. That everybody just had a little chunk of bread and a little chunk of fish. But the text should remove that thought from our minds. They had eaten their fill. They're, these portions were generous. They were not meager. It's like when I went to Presbytery the other night, I had my heart set on Longhorn. I didn't have time to go to Longhorn. 
So I crashed at Cracker Barrel because it was right around the corner from the church I had to go to for the Presbyterian meeting. And I, I couldn't finish my meal. That astounded me. I left a biscuit. <laughs> but I was wondering if I was going to, you know, I thought, oh, I haven't had country fried steak in a while. I'll enjoy this. And I'm finding, I'm feeling full and I'm not done with my country fried steak yet. I've got to press through. That's how they felt. They had, they had as much as they wanted. John wants us to know. They were full when they were done. And Jesus then makes this statement that also reminds us of what happened in 2 Kings 4. Gather up the leftover fragments. And so not only were they full, but there was plenty left over. Twelve baskets of plenty left over. Not sort of, well, actually at the farm we often have leftovers that are good for about, you know, another meal or two of, you know, 15 people or something. Lots left over with 12 baskets. The abundance of God's grace towards them, His compassion upon them, His goodness to them is revealed in the fullness of their bellies and the fullness of those baskets with the crumbs that are left over. God's abundant goodness, God's luxurious goodness, so to speak, towards them. But He doesn't want it to be wasted. It's not, okay, you've, you've eaten. Who cares what's left in the crumbs? Collect it. We'll have it for later. But the text also indicates that these baskets, these 12 baskets, are fragments from the five barley loaves, which means that the miracle was not that certain people said, wow, the little kid Sharon, let's pull out our lunch and share too. It's fragments from those same five barley loaves which, of course, from our perspective, does not make sense, okay, in a naturalistic world, because there's more in the baskets than there was originally. And so it is with Christ. Abundant goodness. And so we see that the Father cares about his children's needs. Remember, they hadn't even asked about this. Jesus is the one who initiates this process. They didn't come to him and say, we need food. Give us food. Jesus looked up, saw the crowds, and said, we need to feed them, guys. Okay? Now, we're in the midst of a renovation, as you might have noticed. And part of what's going on in the renovation is that every time we turn around, something new gets added to the bill. <laughs> Okay, that long trench we had to dig a few weeks ago, all of these things. There's unexpected and unanticipated expenses that get rung up, especially when you start opening up walls and things. You find out termite damage, so forth, so on. And then, of course, when you start dealing with the county of, you know, Pima County, now they have one of all these things they want to make us do because we want to add a modular over there. And this bill is growing, and I go, I'm sort of almost like Philip. How is this going to happen? I can now understand why the Pope initiated indulgences <laughs> to build, <laughs> to build, you know, the cathedrals down in Rome. I can understand this almost, you know, it's a much smaller scale, obviously. And the answer is not to sell indulgences. We're not going to start asking, you know charging you for different sins, okay? 
we won't we won't sing the jingle, you know, in the coin, into the box the box. I can't remember right now. But we have to trust the one who loves us and has given his son for us to believe that he will not spare all things that are necessary for our goodness and godliness. And so we may not understand how it's all going to happen and when it's all going to come together financially, but we must remember this, that he is the one who fed over 10,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Surely he can provide what we need when we need it. That's not the only thing that's going here on here. John doesn't want us just to look back. John also wants us to look forward. In Isaiah 25, we read this about, you know, it's John, uh, sorry, Isaiah's little mini apocalypse. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, which means good pieces of steak, people. All of aged wine well refined. The feast at the end of the world, which Revelation 19 talks about as the wedding supper of the Lamb. This is a foretaste, a foreshadowing of that much greater meal that's going to take place. Because there'll be far more than 10,000 plus people. Probably be more like 10 billion or more people. Keep going. The longer Jesus tarries, the bigger that number gets from our perspective. And he already knows the number. but And again, he provides it all. This eschatological feast. And so this sign points us to a God who is abundant in compassion and goodness for us. It's good news, people. Second and last point is that the sign produces faith and unbelief in the same people. Now, first remember, there are many people who discount this sign because they don't believe that miracles are possible. They're uh, sort of, but not quite like Vincent Vega in Pulp Fiction. C.S. Lewis in his book Miracles talks about this as the, the naturalist point of view, and I tend to prefer the, the materialist point of view. But either way, whatever you, what do you call it, this is the idea that we live in a closed system. There is the universe. And then there is stuff that's out of the universe, and what's out of the universe can't affect what's in the universe. And so, based on that presupposition that there's no such thing as a miracle, nothing outside can change what's in. So there can be no such thing as the suspension of the laws of nature. So an axe head, as we see in the Old Testament, is never going to float. That there is no way in the world that five small loaves of bread and two tiny little fish can feed over 10,000 people. Okay, that's the naturalist framework. And they come to the text with their presuppositions that these things can't happen, and therefore, like Thomas Jefferson, want to kind of take out the scissors and remove that text because it's, it's a fairy tale in their minds. It's based on their presuppositions. Now, the people who were there upon the, the hillside or the mountain, they had different presuppositions because they had probably read or had read to them the Old Testament, which is 
filled with miracles. No, not on every page, not on every day, but there were certain points in time in which there were lots of miracles, usually associated with the progress of redemption. And so we saw lots of miracles at the time of Moses. And then we see lots of, time, lots of miracles at the times of the two great prophets of the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha. We see lots of those. And so these people were primed, in a sense, for miracles, to believe in them. And they recognized them for what they were as a sign that it was not just about, hey, we got fed, but it says something bigger. They believed that it meant that he, Jesus, was the promised prophet. They believed that this is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded. If you look a couple verses earlier, it, it directly refers back to Exodus 20 when they had said, Moses, don't let God talk to us anymore. Let him talk to you, and then you talk to us, because they were so afraid. Okay? It specifically relates back to that. And so again, this prophet that was to come is going to be like Moses, that he's going to hear from God, and he's going to speak for God, so that the people don't have to hear from God directly. And Jesus is the prophet that was to come. But here's the thing. He's greater than Moses. He's also greater than Elisha and Elijah the two main prophets of the kingdom period. When all of the miracles that they performed, Jesus is greater. But here's the thing. If you know he's the prophet, what you're supposed to do is listen to him, to trust him. But what they ended up doing, see, there's their faith. Now here comes their unbelief. What they're doing is they're trying to use him. Jesus, who knows what's in the heart of men, knows that they sought to make him king by force. They probably figured, we've got 5,000 men here. This is the, the, the work, the beginnings of a pretty good militia that can stand up against Rome. They want to make him king. To accomplish their purposes. To be free of the, the, the oppression of the Roman Empire. That's what they're looking for. They're not looking to obey him, but to use him. These guys would fit well in ISIS, wouldn't they? You know, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, these religious militants who are trying to kill other people to be free of the supposed oppression of their governments. These guys would fit well in here. They think they've found the leader who will, who will bring them all together and accomplish their purposes. But we find here that Jesus refuses to surrender himself to our agenda. Because the text says, he withdrew again. So not only did he withdraw from Jerusalem and the conflict with the Jewish leaders, but here we see he withdraws from the average person who seeks to use him for their own purposes. Remember I mentioned Nadab and Abihu? I want us to think on a slightly larger scale for a second. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Okay? 
Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. He's pointing to their baptism in Moses at the Red Sea and their, the provision of food and, and manna as well as the Passover. So in a sense, he's kind of... Think of it this way, brothers. Don't want you to be unaware. They received the sacraments just like you. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. So he's telling them, Christ provided for them. Nevertheless, verse 5, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Same thing we see here. <laughs> They're eating the things that Jesus provided, okay? And many of them are going to be overthrown, so to speak, in the wilderness. It fits that Passover wilderness motif that John is building. Just because God is good to you in an earthly sense does not mean that he is good to you in a spiritual and eternal sense. Let's not confuse those two things. Don't let your fiscal prosperity think that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Is your faith in Christ with regard to your sin. That's the key issue. That's the key thing. The fiscal or financial blessings are a bonus if they come. So we all come to God's signs with presuppositions that move us to reject them, perhaps like Vincent Vega. I'll tell you what happened to Vincent. Vincent stayed in the mob business and later on in the movie, he's been sent to kill a boxer who was supposed to throw a fight, a Butch played by Bruce Willis. And he ends up getting killed by Butch with his own gun. Didn't end very well for Vincent Vega. We don't know what happened to Jules, precisely because in that scene there in the, in the cafe or the breakfast place, he says that he is going to leave the life. He didn't just believe that a miracle happened. He believed it called him to something, a change in who he was. And so there's, we don't watch him dying because he's no longer engaged in the dangerous business that had occupied him already. So some believe, like Jules. Jules got the message. Jules was a changed man, leaving the gangster life. This sign of Jesus feeding the 5,000 men and then all the who knows how many women and children encourages us to believe in Christ's abundant compassion, to believe in his abundant goodness so that we will trust him and obey him instead of trying to get him to do what we want. Those are two very different things, brothers and sisters. Why don't we pray? 
Father, we all experience the temptation. To turn uh, thy will be done into my will be done. And I thank you that you are too great to allow that to happen. That even while you show us compassion and goodness, sometimes you gently correct us out of your love and faithfulness. Father, help us to trust you as the God who can provide all that we need. Father, we've engaged in this building renovation and expansion, believing that that's what you would have us to do. And so now we look to you uh, to provide what we need. But that's not all we need. Father, we need your spiritual blessings that are only found in Jesus Christ. And so may you grant them to us. May we indeed earnestly seek you when we recognize our need for them. Earnestly seeking you, not for the miracle, but for the love. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.